Today, I thought I might begin by talking about two really famous paintings from antiquity, one which is perhaps slightly more famous than the other. And so the first painting that comes to mind is super famous, right? The Creation of Adam, painted in the 16th century by the great Renaissance painter Michelangelo. And of course, it resides on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And it depicts, you know, God stretching out his finger to touch the outstretched finger of Adam. And one really important key to kind of understanding this particular painting is to appreciate that even though Adam is certainly in a reclining position, at the same time, he's not merely asleep, he is dead, right? So he's dead as a doorknob, right? Because of course, the whole idea is that when the finger of God, you know, the one who is the way and the truth in life, when this finger touches the outstretched finger of the one who was previously dead, all of a sudden that person will become certainly alive through his great influx of God's grace and his divine life. But also the world's going to change, right? Because of course, Adam will eventually become the father of the human race. Okay, now hold that thought and think about this second painting, which is not as famous as the first painting, but still kind of famous in its own right. And it's called The Calling of St. Matthew. And this depicts, as you might expect, the calling of one of the first disciples, St. Matthew. And so a couple of things to kind of notice with regards to this particular painting. And so as a matter of background, Matthew obviously was a tax collector, right? And so as you probably know, tax collectors were deeply disrespected back in the time of Christ because they were seen as being traitors to their own people, right? So they were hired by the Roman Empire to extract exorbitant taxes from their own people. So they were seen as being public sinners, if you will. And yet, in the context of this particular painting, here's the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's pointing at St. Matthew, right? He's pointing at St. Matthew while his own feet are kind of pointing towards the door. And what's kind of funny and interesting is that while Jesus is pointing at St. Matthew, what's St. Matthew doing, right? He's sitting at this table with other people, and he's counting his money, right? So he's basically in the very midst of tax collecting. And of course, the convergence of all these different factors conveys something really important about the call to discipleship, but also the very nature of Christ himself. And so first of all, by pointing at St. Matthew while he's counting his money, while he's tax collecting, while he's publicly sinning, if you will, the Lord is saying that the response to the call to discipleship is not something to be deferred, right? Because I call you as you are. I call you to myself, I call you to follow me, and I call you ultimately to be conformed to my being, to become another Christ in this world. Secondly, the fact that Christ's feet are pointed towards the door, even though, again, he is calling Matthew to a sense of discipleship, suggests that basically, even though it's kind of surprising, this is a time-limited offer. And so whether you generously accept the invitation or simply reject it, I'm still going. I'm still going to the next house. I might be going out to the next town. Who knows, right? So again, this is a time-limited offer, the invitation to follow me and become conformed to my being. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, when you look at the hand position of Jesus Christ as he points to St. Matthew in the context of this painting, funny enough, it's the exact same hand position of God in the context of the creation of Adam painting. And so given all that, the unspoken points, even though it's kind of strongly implied, is that even though Matthew in this second painting isn't actually physically dead, unlike Adam in the first painting, at the same time, he's spiritually dead, if you will, as a result of his persistence in remaining in serious sin, as symbolized by the fact that his chosen profession is to be a tax collector. And yet the other part of it, of course, is that here now is the Lord Jesus Christ, the very incarnation of God himself. And again, he's pointing to St. Matthew with that same hand position as God in that first painting. And so therefore, he's inviting him implicitly to receive his grace, to receive divine life, to become a new creation in parallel with the first creation as depicted again in that first painting. Okay, now the reason why I bring up these two different paintings together is to help you appreciate two different concepts, actually. 
And so first of all, with regards to the notion of discipleship, I think a lot of times we look at the call of discipleship as something extra I have to do on top of my already kind of busy life. But the way to look at the call to discipleship is actually in light of these two paintings. And so God isn't simply seeking followers because he wants followers like, you know, those of us on social media. But instead, he's extending to us an invitation. Receive my grace, receive the invitation to new life such that you might share in my blessed life. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing. But the second reason, to be honest, why I want to bring up these two different paintings is to clarify what I mean when I talk about unexpected graces. And so as a matter of background, often in the context of pastoral ministry, especially in the context of weekday masses, actually, I'll talk about unexpected graces. And what I'll often say is that in a certain sense, these are the best of God's graces. They're so much better than graces in the sense of, you know, God helping me to realize my narrow plans and goals and ambitions. But then funny enough, it sort of occurred to me recently that perhaps there might be an opportunity to kind of further expound upon this concept, to further explain to people why unexpected graces are in fact, in a certain sense, arguably the very choice graces within God's repertoire. So as I'm recording this, I've been a priest for like roughly 10 years. But I remember back when I got ordained as a priest at St. Michael's Cathedral in the Archdiocese of Toronto, shortly after that, people would often ask me, what was your favorite part of the whole ceremony, the whole ceremony of, of becoming a priest? And to be honest, in response to that particular question, what you want to say is the laying on of hands, right? When a bishop lays his hands on top of your head to make you a priest, because that's when the ontological change actually happens. And to be honest, if you don't give the answer, it seems like, you know, incorrect, right? It seems like you're kind of godless, right? And so, you know, there's a part of me, whenever that question is posed to me, that wants to give that particular response. But if I'm being honest, that wasn't my favorite part of the entire ceremony. My favorite part of the entire ceremony actually had nothing to do with the ritual. And so if you ever watched or attended a priestly ordination, you might recall that roughly during the first half of that ritual, the ordinandi are facing away from the people. And so again, there's a laying on of hands, there's that thing with the book of the gospels, there's the anointing ceremony, and then there's the whole vesting thing, right? And so after that, after you become a priest, there's the second part where you're now facing the people as you consecrate the Eucharist as a newly ordained priest. And the funny thing about that particular moment is that when I turned around and I was facing the people and I was vested as a priest and I was, you know, a priest ontologically speaking, I remember looking at my mother, right, who had come all the way from Vancouver and she was standing in the front row. And it was a really simple gesture, but all she did, she, she winked at me. She just winked at me. And so just to kind of think it through, right, it was one of those moments that was so quick, so subtle, so fast, that literally, if you blinked, you might miss it. And yet my mom knew. She knew that the first time I turned around to face the people of God as a newly ordained priest, I would look at her first. And on top of that, she knew that I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't miss it if she winked at me, even though it was quick and even though it was subtle. And you know, what's funny about that particular moment was that it was so unexpectedly beautiful and it touched me in this really deep and profound sort of way that I just started crying. And it lasted like all the way through to when I was giving out communion. And the people didn't know that the reason why I was crying was because my mom winked at me. They just thought, I'm sure a lot of them thought that the reason why I was crying was because I suddenly realized that now I'm a priest and I'm celibate and the whole nine yards, which was uh, kind of funny. And what's more, people didn't have a Kleenex, you know? And so I remember just like, you know, again, persisting in this ugly cry uh, while giving out communion to the people of God in, at St. Michael's Cathedral, which was um, funny and beautiful at the same time. Anyways, the reason why I bring up this particular example, and the reason why I'm spending so much time kind of describing all the relevant details in terms of, you know, what happened, what people saw, what was actually going on in my own mind and my own heart, 
is because for my money, this is a really great way to explain the nature of unexpected graces. Because even though this moment was kind of embarrassing on some level, because people didn't really know why I was crying, at the same time, because it was mysterious, because it was hidden, it was all the more special. And again, this speaks to the very nature and beauty of the unexpected grace, which in turn speaks to our relationship with God, and in particular, how God actually sees us. And so think of it like this. We are so unique, so special in the eyes of our Father in heaven, that every single day, throughout the course of our lives, He sprinkles various Easter eggs, various unexpected graces that are meant for us and us alone, that are meant to be discovered by us and us alone. And a lot of times these graces are so unique, so special, that even when we try to explain them to other people, our explanations turn to dust. Not because these things aren't real, not because they're not beautiful, but because ultimately, at the end of the day, these things are not meant for public consumption. They're not meant for other people. They're meant for you and you alone. And may God bless you all.